Before we start this week's episode, which was recorded a while ago, on September 8th, 2022, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II sadly passed away. This may have led to you to think that this week's episode would be about that. It isn't. It's continuing our story about Warhammer. However, what I wanted to say is that, obviously, this is an important historical event, and now we have the longest reigning British monarch passing into the pages of history. I think it's inevitable at some point I'm going to do an episode on her and her reign. But now's not the right time. There is still more to be written about it in terms of things like Charles's coronation and the funeral, etc. And also, to be blunt, everybody and his brother is going to do a podcast about Queen Elizabeth II, and some will be, I'm sure, extremely excellent. Things like the coverage on the BBC will be better than anything I could ever do. So I don't think it's the right time. I don't think I can add anything meaningful, but I just wanted to take this opportunity that both Greg and I recognise that this is an important moment of history that has just passed. Thank you. Now, back to the podcast. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what we're doing this time round is we are returning to Warhammer. Now, technically, this is a part two, although you can listen to it as a standalone if you want to. It's not essential that you did the other one, but what I'm talking about is the concepts of knights, as in shining armor, not hot in the city tonight. So that's what I mean. Now, the first one I went to, because as I've said many times before, if you're, if, even if you're not familiar with Warhammer, but you are familiar with this podcast, you know two basic flavors of Warhammer, one in an old world with knights in shining armor, and one in the far-flung future, Warhammer 40,000, which has space marines in it and spaceships and things like that. What I did is I figured knights are so influential to Warhammer and are used in such different ways that I went for one for each one of those types of Warhammer game. So the last one, Knights Part 1, if you like, that's all to do with the old world. And I, I even mentioned the ones from Fantasy Battle as well as Age of Sigmar. Sounds good? Listen to that episode. It's already out there. This time round, we're going to go to Warhammer 40,000. And it is really interesting to me how the concept and even the word knight is used in very different ways. This is the weapon of a Jedi Knight. In terms of how it appears and pops up. And while undoubtedly the idea of the guy in shining armor is once again clear and present, on the other hand, because Warhammer 40,000, it is interesting to me, you would think that it would be the old world one that would be more to do with religion. Now, make no mistake about it, there are kind of gods and demigods in Age of Sigmar, but actually an awful lot of the different armies, different cultures, aren't defined by religion. 
per se or faith, but it's absolutely essential in Warhammer 40,000, no more so than with the humans, the Imperium of Man. As I said before, and you know, I'm, I've been thinking about potentially going back to it, perhaps a deeper dive on things like the Inquisitions. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition! And the idea of heretics and all this kind of stuff that is genuinely in Warhammer 40,000. But one of the other things that they do is you know, literally use the term knight for actually quite different things. So <laughs> I keep talking around it. Let's get on with it. Yes, get on with it! But just before I do, it's always worth saying, hey, look, if you've arrived for the Warhammer, we do lots of different things. I've done stuff like the history of comedy, or I've picked a movie like Top Gun Maverick, or I've even done other games like Monopoly. So if this one sounds good, it's the same basic idea, whereas I start with something that perhaps you're familiar with and take you into areas that you might not know about, taking you into centuries old history. But if you like the Warhammer stuff only, well, there's probably about another dozen of those episodes for you to listen to as well. I'm at Gem Daduccio on Twitter. Please, if you can subscribe, if you can drop us a review, all of this helps spread the word. If you do follow me on Twitter, you'll see that every Tuesday I do sort of tweet out regularly saying, hey, here's the new one. This is what the topic is. Be great if you could retweet that out there into the Twitterverse. Appreciate it. So the one I'm going to start with is the one I'm going to spend a little less time on. Knight is a classification of a big stompy robot. So if you're looking at, for starters, I know they're not robots, they're actually vehicles in humanoid form. So if we want to start at the smallest big stompy robot, we've got things called dreadnoughts, which in essence are almost like coffins with sort of semi-dead space marines inside them that their essence is still kept alive they're not allowed out of the dreadnought they're kind of in like a almost like suspended animation in there and you know if you were to break them open the marine inside it would then die die as opposed to being in a case of sort of almost waking death Luke help me take this mask off but you'll die. So it's it's almost like a life support machine. They can last centuries, maybe thousands of years in there. They're seen very much as almost like a sacred relic in the space marine groups. And that is probably 12 feet tall, something like that. Now, there are different types of dreadnoughts, like, for example, the Redemptor, where we're talking substantially taller than that. It, it might be more like 15, 16, 17 feet tall. Convert into meters if you want to. But then we go up to the Armagers, which are kind of stompy robots, but they are the, the, maybe the next step up. They're slightly taller than a dreadnought. But the thing I then want to go into is specifically the Imperial Knights. There you go. The word is in their name. And an Imperial Knight is probably about the same height as a three-story building. And they're humanoid. They've got these big hunched shoulders. Their head's very low down, sort of like more almost into their chest with these big carapaces over their top, and they're bristling with guns. And you can imagine that if a large metallic humanoid thing where each arm is a weapon, even if you get underneath it, those feet will crush you and crush your average vehicles as well. 
They are incredibly devastating on the battlefields of Warhammer 40,000, and they are actually run by a human being inside them. Indeed, they actually have like knightly orders, these houses, if you like, of knights, and they sort of run out of them. And, and they're a support to the space marines. Space marines themselves would never drive a knight. You've got to be sort of like highly specialized, highly trained, and quite often hereditary role. So they would be seen as sort of like the tip of the spear for Im imperial forces, be it space marines, be it the imperial guard, be it the Sisters of Mercy. Sisters of Mercy? That's a rock band from the 1980s. Sisters of Battle, although the Sisters of Mercy probably influenced the Sisters of Battle, that's a whole other thing. So, yeah, you get the idea. They're their own thing. They fight for the Imperium of Man. You can literally build an army just of big stompy robots, or there are rules to allow them to be your very heavy contingent in your other Imperial army. Of course, like anything in the Imperium, there's been corrupted ones, and relatively recently they've released sort of like brand new kits for like the chaotic versions. I was about to use the word evil, some people say no, it's the Empire that's evil, and yeah, I mean everybody's just terrible, just the worst in Warhammer 40,000. You wouldn't want to live there. This is why it's called Grim Dark in terms of its styling. You can see that that's quite different from a medieval knight. However, the pageantry, the banners, the iconography, all very reminiscent of a knight from the High Middle Ages, not the earlier periods of the Middle Ages. So all of that fits together quite nicely, and yes, there are chaotic versions with even more spiky bits to them. But same basic principle there. Now, the, the other thing about knights is we can get bigger, because once you take a step up from a knight, then we're into Titan territory, where you've got the Warhound, you've got the Reaver, you've then got the Warlord. Now, the Warlord Titan is... Well, I mean, it's literally the real one. You can buy a model. It's a resin kit. It's the most expensive Warhammer model you can buy. Take a guess. How much would you buy for a kit that you have to build and paint? And by the way, this thing's so big, they're not going to be easy to transport once they're fully built. And even on top of that, yeah, you could get it wrong. How much could you possibly spend on a model? How much? To you, Del Boy, £17 each. The answer is, once you buy all the sort of extra arms and kits and stuff like that, is it's about £1,400. Ouch. That's a holiday. And it genuinely is over a foot tall. So when you consider that a space marine, who's already quite tall anyway, taller than a normal human being, they're 28 millimeters so just under three centimeters or about an inch basically you can see how a titan would just completely dominate the battlefield and sort of even tower over something like a knight there's just these ever larger and larger big stompy robots there we go so that's one former of knight i've literally mentioned them but then there's two other types of knight one's mentioned and one's implied i want to talk about specific types of space marine and what's going on there. So the first one are the Grey Knights. Again, the name shows you that they come from a knightly order. Now the Grey Knights are actually my personal favorite faction of space marines. To sort of give you a little bit of my own personal background, 
when all of this stuff came out in 1987 and I was well into the hobby then, I went Space Marine crazy, as everybody did and still does. The Space Marines are the single biggest selling faction, which is why they got more models than any other faction and other Warhammer 40,000 groups are sort of saying, when do we get some love? You know, it's been 10 years since we've had any sort of decent new units added to our stuff. Come on, guys. In the meantime, they just keep churning out, here's another base for the Space Marines, here's new equipment for the Space Marines. With the advent of the 8th edition of Warhammer 40,000, they introduced the Primaris Space Marines. You know how the Space Marines are the most Space Marine-y ultimate peak of genetic engineering that physically improved everything that a human being can be. They're taller, faster, better reflexes, more resistance to poisons, can better gener regeneration, all this kind of stuff. Yes, they are the pinnacle. The best of the best of the best. Well, Primaris are all that and more. Okay, so what, they're Ultra Space Marines? Well, they're Primaris Space Marines. It's like, ugh, I, I hate that bit of the lore. Just say they're the normal Space Marines in new armor. Doesn't make any difference. Change the rules, but, you know, having Space Marines then having to re-go, rebirth to re become even more Space Marine-y is kind of lame. I'm sorry. Apologies if I've offended anybody there on, on the lore and the Primaris thing. There we go. They're chopped up into lots of different groups. Nowadays they're called chapters. In the past they're called legions. Let's not go into that. So I absolutely loved the Space Marines. I created my own chapter back in the 80s and I just painted, painted, painted. Ah, here's another dreadnought. You know, I painted other stuff as well, but by far and away the largest amount of stuff I had helped by the fact that there was an entire plastic kit of Space Marines so you could build an entire platoon of them relatively easily. Didn't have to deal with all that white metal. Some of them were, but anyway, when I left the hobby and then came back to it six, seven years ago, I turned around and went, there's so many other cool kits. The one thing I'm not really going to do is paint more Space Marines. I painted probably over a hundred of them back in the day. I don't feel the need to paint them anymore. And also, you know, your average Space Marine is a bit dull to paint. You know, there's a lot of smooth sides to them, hard to dry brush anyway, blah, blah, blah. But I did make an exception for the Grey Knights. What are the Grey Knights? They're everything I've just said. These sort of super powerful, genetically enhanced warriors inside this incredibly powerful power armor. Forget Stormtroopers, these guys can take a hit. But on top of that, these guys are psychic as well. And they are basically the Imperial Demon Hunters. Their whole goal is to power the psychic weapons to carve through the evil, chaotic host of demons that might be threatening the Imperium of Man. They're everything I've just said, and then on top of that, they got another layer of psychic abilities. Indeed, in a sort of spin-off version of Warhammer 40,000 for much smaller units, it's, if you like, more detailed, but you're not allowed vehicles or anything like that. You've probably got five to ten people per side and that's max in terms of what you've got. It's called Kill Team and in that one I played a little bit of Kill Team first edition and Grey Knights just win. <laughs> it was unfair for the other side because hardly anything's got psychic abilities and they all have psychic abilities and so I was taking down in the first round like half the enemy army and you know if you've only got like ten models you're not going to win if, you, if you're down to five models. So anyway, yeah, there's a top tip there. Not sure about how second edition, if they are still incredibly overpowered. But the reason why they're called Grey Knights is because they're not covered in any paint or anything like that. 
ultramarines are blue, something like the imperial fists are yellow. With the grey knights, they're just sort of like the silver colour, the metallic colour of the armour. But they do have, again, quite a lot of heraldry on them. They have these kind of wax seals on them. I've mentioned this before, but the wax seals are meant to be imbued with like psychic power, but obviously when you see medieval documents, they've got these wax seals with these ribbons coming off them, and they've got nothing to do with power, but they've got everything to do with this is an important person who probably is illiterate, but this is the seal of the Duke of Norfolk or something like that. And so they're sort of, they do look very knight-like. Indeed, they have sometimes these jousting shields. It's something I mentioned in the first version of the Knight One for Warhammer about how when we get to the very end of the Middle Ages and jousting has become a thing. He needs three points to beat you, so a broken lance won't win it for him. He has to knock you off the horse. You've got extra thick armor around certain areas where you're likely to be hit in a joust. Very impractical, very thick and heavy in terms of actually being in warfare, but perfect for jousting. And sometimes Sometimes it was like a miniature shield, in essence welded onto their chest, and you get some of those on these Grey Knights, and they look cool, and they look awesome, and they quite often have these psychic lances, actually more like pole arms. So imagine a spear shaft, and on the end of it there's like an axe head, or like a long blade, rather than a typical jousting lance, which is sort of tubular and just goes all the way down to a point. So not so much that. But yeah, they look cool, they're really awesome. And again, they're sort of very secretive. If it's hard to become a Space Marine, it's even harder to become a Grey Knight. They are the elite of the elite and have a lot of fun playing them. I think they look really cool. They don't actually have many models. There aren't that many different kits for them because they're quite a niche, specialised group. But yeah, I love the Grey Knights, and you can see that they're clearly riffing off the Knights of Old. So then we come on to, if you like, the main event of this, something that's going to lead on to, as I said, the kind of religious aspects of this. There are the Black Templars, who have been quite literally the poster boys on a number of occasions for Warhammer 40,000, pretty much from about, I think, third edition. And they've recently, again, had quite a lot of love, sort of like some new models and things like that for them. And as soon as I say Templar, I know you know what I'm talking about. You are aware of the Knights Templar, and then we've got, so these are the Black Templars, what's going on there? And actually, their cross, they have this symbol of a cross with like each end of the cross actually ends in two points, which ironically is something to do sort of with the Knights Templar, but another group like the Knights Templar that you might well have heard of called the Knights Hospitaller. The Hospitallers, as they're also known as, which is where we literally get the word hospital from. And these guys are carrying out basically constant crusades. They are always on the move. They don't actually have a home base. All the other chapters of Space Marines have like a home world. These guys are actually sort of always on their spaceships, always moving around, always ready for a fight. And they are always trying to hunt down chaos. Look, they'll fight the Orcs if they have to. They will challenge the Necrons if they must. But what they really, really want to do is hunt down those chaos people, a bit like the Grey Knights, although they're less interested in just chaos, but specifically chaos demons. So if you're just a chaos cultist, mucking around, the Grey Knights will still kill you, but they'll only really see you as a threat if you can actually summon the forces from the warp. With the Knights Templar, little less. If you just any whiff of chaos about you, they'll probably burn and set on fire your entire planet. Forget about cities. So yeah, this is where we're going into the history, where we're of course going to be touching on the Crusades, 
naturally I'm going to be talking about the Knights Templar and of course there'll also be something about the Knights Hospitaller as well. These groups are collectively known as the Military Orders. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. I am pleased to announce that Condensed Histories has its very first sponsor. Thank you so much, Dark Fantastic Mills. Now, what is Dark Fantastic Mills? It is a great 3D printing terrain company. What does that mean to you? Well, if you are, like me, a player of various war games, like Warhammer, for example, they do game-neutral scenery. So it could be something like gnarled woodlands, or it could be a, an entire fortress. It could be a sci-fi distillation plant. All kinds of really cool, interesting stuff that you can happily use for your games of Warhammer or Dungeons and Dragons or all kinds of TTRPGs. You can find Dark Fantastic Mills at dark underscore fantastic on Twitter, or more easily, darkfantasticmills.com. And here's the great thing, because they've got such belief in us and we absolutely love using their products too, I myself have got loads of it in the shed and use it all the time. For the record, I've only needed to use glue once. Almost everything just comes in either fully formed or easily to slot together, or even better, magnetized. Very easy to put together. So yes, if this sounds interesting, if this sounds like your kind of thing, then great news. When you go to the darkfantasticmills.com website and put in your order, if you type in the promotional code CONDENSED, as in condensed histories, if you type in CONDENSED, you get 10% off everything. So go out there, fill your boots, enjoy yourselves, and help a small independent company as well. That's darkfantasticmills.com. Or if you want to say hi to them, it's dark underscore fantastic on Twitter. Thank you. So once again, in terms of Warhammer and Knights Part 1, I talk about how a knight, your average knight, fits into feudal society. Want to know more about that? Listen to the other one. Not going to do it again. But the thing about, let's say, the Count of Anjou or wherever in Western Europe, knights were available in pretty much every country, these landowners had more than one son. An heir and a spare was very useful. Disease was rife. Warfare. People died in warfare. So you might want a second son who's kind of on standby if son number one doesn't quite make it. Third sons invariably went to become bishops and things like that, which shows you why a lot of medieval clergymen weren't that spiritual, because there wasn't a calling. It's just sort of like, well, I'd really like to run Kent, but I'm not allowed to. That's my brother's job, so I guess I'll just have to be... Archbishop of Canterbury, where I'm actually more powerful than my brother. Ha 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 ha. I appoint to the Holy See of Canterbury my own son, Edwin. It's looking at it from, as a sort of career move or power step is probably not what Jesus intended. But anyway, there are a lot of unusual concepts to do with medieval religion. And I've said this in several other podcasts here, but also in books I've written and other podcasts I've, I've been a guest on. 
trying to get into the mindset of a medieval person is very hard because they did think very differently to the way we do today. One of the things that people talk about is the Crusades. Did people go on them for their spiritual health or were they doing it for immediate wealth gains? And the answer is, can't it be both? You see, in the modern mind, we tend to say, well, if you're using religion, you're using it cynically. And it's like, well, no, not, not at all. And this is the thing. In the first one, I was talking about how they fitted into society, but these were still medieval humans who understood what was going on in terms of their society. And if you were in the West, you were a Christian. And even if you couldn't read or write, you had these regular services from the local clergy, and pretty much everybody knew the Ten Commandments. The Lord, the Lord Jehovah, has given unto you these 15... Oi. Ten! Ten Commandments! One of them, obviously, the most important one, Thou shalt not kill. Now, if my job as a knight is to do just that, to be a weapon of warfare for my, my overlord, I'm killing people. And I know that's wrong, and that means I'm going to go to hell. And hell was a very big reality to a medieval person. I, again, it doesn't matter whether you believe or not now. I think you really have to sort of sit hard and empathize with these people, not sit there and go, oh, how stupid, didn't they realize that there are other options? No, not at all. If you want to understand why things happened in the past, you've got to understand how people thought in the past. And whatever your views are on religion, trying to take it out of history is a fool's errand because it's there all the time. It is not true that religion has caused every war, but certainly if you've got a war with added religious motivation, it certainly seems to run hotter. There seems to be more violence, less compromise, like the Crusades, although it is more complicated than that. Look, I've written an entire book on the Crusades. It's called Deus Vault, A Concise History of the Crusades. It takes you from the concept of holy war all the way through to the ones that went beyond the Middle East and beyond the Middle Ages. Want to know more? Grab a copy. It's available in all usual places. It's published through Amberley Publishing. Very proud of that book. It was the first one to summarize all the Crusades, because prior to that, when people said, wrote a book saying this is about the Crusades, they meant the first four and only in the Middle East. It's like it is so much more complicated than that. But anyway, I digress. So the point here is this. I'm a knight. My job is to kill. But I'm a human and a Christian, and I know killing is wrong. So the real attraction of the First Crusade was basically when Pope Urban II basically said that this mission to relieve Jerusalem of the infidel by a Christian army, this will give you a guaranteed place in heaven, whether you make it there or not, whether you kill a Muslim or not, whatever happens to you, the fact that you have decided to go upon this dangerous, arduous, long uh, and, and violent journey, you, whatever happens to you, you get to go to heaven. So you can understand why the First Crusade sent ecstatic shockwaves around Europe and why so many of the aristocracy decided to go. Maybe they'll get rich, maybe they'll die, but they get to go to heaven. Paradise is assured. 
And isn't that an attractive prospect? And it was the same deal on every crusade. Indeed, it evolved beyond crusades. A quick example of this is once we get into, I mean, you're thinking, well, this is a jump gem. But in the 1500s, we've got Queen Elizabeth I of England. This is after the Protestant Reformation, you know, all that good stuff with Martin Luther. Suddenly you've got two different flavors of Christianity in Europe. Some kingdoms are still very, very loyal to the Pope in Rome, France, for example. This is where we're going to have to start using the word Catholic, except, you know, using the word Catholic earlier than the Protestant Reformation is redundant. But obviously everybody's looking in Western Europe to the Pope. Further east, you might be an Orthodox Christian and be looking to the powers in Byzantium. It's getting complicated. I'm not going to do church history now. <laughs> so the point is... As I've just said, you get to go to heaven if you go on crusade. But Queen Elizabeth I was a Protestant. So in the eyes of the Pope, she was a heretic. She'd turned her back on the one true version of the faith. And so a proclamation, the title is in Latin, it's Regens in Excelsis. And this title is now just the name of what it was. And basically what Regens in Excelsis was, was saying Queen Elizabeth I is bad. You need to assassinate her. And any good Catholic that does assassinate her, well, that's the same as going on crusade. Whatever happens to you, you're guaranteed to go to heaven. So we've conflated sending an entire army into the Middle East, fighting multiple campaigns and you know, multiple sieges and recapturing a city sort of recapturing a city, to the assassination of a woman. Those two things are not the same, morally or anything else, and yet that's how corrupted the concept of these papal indulgences had become. You can see the appeal for a knight. I get to do what I'm good at and I get to go to heaven, and I might make some good for the world as well. When the First Crusade did successfully siege and capture Jerusalem in 1099, they celebrated by an orgy of violence that was extreme even by the long and bloody and sad history of Jerusalem. That has The city has undergone more than 20 different sieges over its entire history. And this may not be number one most violent, but it's up there. It's definitely in the top five. The Crusaders wrote with glee about how much bloodshed they created in this city. And they killed not just Muslims, but Jews and local Christians as well. It was terrible. It was horrible. But after that, we've got the Crusaders settling down in the Middle East. And so we get the Crusader States, the Outremer, as it's sometimes called in Latin. And so this place needed to be protected. And we get the start of the military orders. The first one was actually the Knights Hospitaller. And the idea was this. A monk, you're aware of a monk, they live in a commune, they take a vow of poverty and of chastity, and they spend their days praying and writing out manuscripts. And they are basically, they are in service to God. And there were hundreds of these abbeys around Europe, and some of them were fabulously wealthy and incredibly important in terms of politics and religion and architecture as well. So now we have the same idea with knights. Like a monk, they live in a community. Like a monk, they take a vow of poverty. Like a monk, they basically are beholden to a central religious authority. 
it would be the abbot in an in an abbey and this in this case it'd be a grand master literally a title used in space marines in warhammer 40,000 in one of these military orders except the monks there aren't monks they're knights and rather than writing out all those manuscripts and praying all day long they fight for god in many ways a monk and a member of the military order are exactly the same the image of the knights templar is of two men on one horse which shows their their poor their vow of poverty writ large we are too poor to have a horse per man look how modest we are now all the military orders basically became fabulously wealthy but the men themselves if you want to talk about well it's rife with corruption no these men fought hard these men genuinely did take vows of chastity and poverty i'm not entirely sure whether the chastity was always withheld but there's no records of you know having wives sitting around lots of kids running about all these castles which they which they manned in the holy land You've got the Hospitallers first, where literally, although they did fight for God, perhaps more time was spent looking after the sick in these halls, which became known as hospitals. That's the connection there. The Knights Templar did exactly the same thing. They called themselves the Templars because they took over the Holy Rock, the Holy Dome in Jerusalem. That was their sort of epicenter for decades. They actually thought that everything there was part of the palace complex of biblical Jewish kings, particularly Solomon, they were wrong. It was the original Jewish temple with a large amount of debris on top of it and Muslim sites like the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock, two incredibly holy, religious, important places for Muslims that for a time had, were converted into basically the Templars HQ. This was not because they were trying to besmirch anything Islamic. It was just they just didn't understand quite what they were sitting on top of and misappropriated it to something else. So that's where we get the name Templars from. Both of them became very wealthy. The thing about the Templars, though, is there's all these conspiracy theories around them. This crusade, one of the most massive sweeping in history, was actually orchestrated by a secret brotherhood, the Priory of Sion, and their military arm, the Knights Templar. This comes a lot later. So I want to introduce a third military order to explain kind of what happens next. And those are the Teutonic Knights. Teutonic basically means German. Guess where they were from? Largely Germany, although they did have people all around the world, or all around Europe, I should say, as part of their order. They indeed had operations in the Holy Land, but they spent most of their time in Northern Europe fighting on what became known as the Northern Crusades. First of all, against the pagan Wends, that's W-E-N-D-S. Yes, there were still pagans in the early medieval era, or in the middle of the medieval era, I suppose, up in Northern Europe, particularly around Estonia. The Wends did not pray to Allah or Yahweh. Instead, they had the, you know, like many pagan groups, they prayed to multiple deities, you know, things to do with like, uh, you know, woodlands and streams and things like that. And they also had a ritual of a horse, a very sort of like sacred holy horse that would help them divine the future. If you think that's dumb, it's no dumber than Nostradamus making up his stuff or indeed the Romans looking through chicken guts to see what was coming next. 
Meet Paul the Octopus, one of the World Cup's most successful prognosticators. From his tank at the Oberhausen Sea Life Aquarium in Western Germany, he has successfully picked the winner of all of Germany's World Cup matches so far. You know, every culture has their own flavor of idiocy in terms of trying to tell the future. Don't believe me? If you know what star sign you are, yeah, that's just as relevant as the Wends with their horse. Anyway, they got wiped out by the Teutonic Knights, and then they got very much converted into hardcore Christians, and they continued to push north and east into what were now Orthodox Christian lands of Novgorod and the Rus. Sound familiar? I've done a whole thing about this stuff on my episode about Ukraine. So again, you can see how this stuff sort of like inter interlinks with each other. The point is this, we get the fall of the Holy Land at the end of the 1200s. Won't go into all of that. Again, I do that in the book, but I've actually written a historical novel around the end times of the Crusades in the Holy Land. That's called and God watched, because it's always fascinated to me when you read the chronicles, how both sides, Christian and Muslim, were completely convinced that God were on their side. And it's like, how can you think that when you've just lost a battle? Again, applicable for either side. And indeed, ultimately, the Crusaders got pushed out of the Middle East. So does that mean that the Christian God's not as powerful as the Islamic Allah? You know, it's an interesting theological question, which nobody bothered thinking too hard about, because that would lead to some rather uncomfortable answers. So anyway, if you'd like this sort of turned into a story, I'm very proud of And God Watched. Sadly, all my historical novels I've had to self-publish, so you can get it as either an e-book or a paperback, but it's only available on Amazon. For those of you who want to grumble about Amazon, hey, it's the easiest way to self-publish. I'm sorry. So let's move on from that. So yeah, you can you can get the images there. But the point is, these crusader groups, these these military orders, they were hoovering up thousands of, of gold pieces, you know, you know, billions in modern day money every year to sort of defend the Holy Land. And they built and constructed some of the most complex and ambitious fortifications and castles the world has ever seen. My all time favorite is Crack de Chevalier in modern day Syria. This was a place that was so good that you get Lawrence of Arabia writing about it during World War One and using it as a weapons depot. And it was literally used by ISIS. They had to be sort of like sent out with modern day artillery and drone strikes and airstrikes. That's how good that castle was, that sort of 700 years later, it is still a going concern militarily. They picked the right spot and some of those walls are 70, 70 feet thick. It's gonna take a lot to break through those. So yeah, sadly I've never been. That would be the one castle I'd love to go and see. And these castles were so well defended and the knights were the absolute cream of Western heavy cavalry. These guys, if they could get into a position to properly charge the Islamic forces, there wasn't anything that the Islamic forces could do to stop them. But because they were big heavy cavalry and the Muslims had lots of light horse archers, if they had space to maneuver, they could get out the way and just keep peppering the knights with arrows. So you get something like the famous Battle of Hattin, which Saladin won and basically annihilated the military orders. But then you get multiple other battles where the Crusaders actually win with their heavy cavalry charges. Point is this, if we're giving you all this money to defend the Holy Land, and the Holy Land isn't in our hands anymore, why are we giving you the money? Now, for the Teutonic Knights, it was easy. They just switched direction. Already, the majority of the activities were in the north of Europe, so they now turned it into all of their activities in Northern Europe. 
For the Hospitallers, what they did is they quickly captured several Greek islands and actually stopped being cavalry for God and started turning into pirates for God. Not making this up, by the way. The Templars, however, didn't really have another base of operation. They were kind of without a front to fight on, so they became almost surplus for requirements. Now, fast forwarding into the early 1300s, the French king is broke, and so he comes up with these ridiculously trumped-up charges, which he sends in sealed envelopes to various officers of the law to be... Basically, everybody had to carry out these orders on the same day, which was Friday the 13th. And the idea of Friday the 13th being unlucky comes from the sudden arrest of these Templars, these people who... Through all the chronicles and all the records, they were all saying these guys were fine. They're exactly the same as the Hospitallers and Teutonic Knights, but suddenly they're deemed as heretics and dangerous and all their lands are going to be confiscated and the French king gets rich overnight. The thing is this. This court case goes on for years. It is very complicated, the trial of the Templars. I do a summary of it again in my book, a book called Deus Vault. Check it out if you want to. But ultimately, they are eventually found guilty. And Jacques de Molay, the last Grand Master of the Knights Templar, along with several other senior figures from this military order, are burnt at the stake as heretics in front of Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. And when the, the burning is finished, the crowd rushes forwards to collect the ashes. Nobody did that with a normal heretic. People did it because they recognized these guys were set up, even by the slightly dubious standards of Middle Ages law courts. Everyone recognized that these guys were innocent and they were basically set up to fail. As I said, this court case went backwards and forwards for years. And what was interesting is that pretty much immediately after this, the French king dies and so does the Pope as well. And so there's sort of like this feeling of almost like godly retribution with this. The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. Now, the last thing I will say on this area is going back to the Knights, oh, sorry, the Black Templars of Warhammer 40,000. They got this eight-pointed cross or star. That's actually the Hospitaller's symbol round about the time of the Great Siege of Malta, which was the last big hurrah, 1565, between the Knights of Malta, which were the now the Hospitaller Knights. You know, they kept being pushed westwards, and the Ottoman Empire. This was cavalry. The cavalry was there, but there were also artillery. There was sort of like uh, aquatic landings. There was a very bloody siege, the Siege of Malta. Incredible. But this is centuries after the period you would expect it to be the Crusades. And by then, because it's after the Protestant Reformation, you've got these eight points to symbolize the eight main countries that still contribute to the Knights Hospitaller. So actually, the Black Templars have got the wrong cross on their symbols. So that's where I'm going to end it there. Hope you enjoyed it. One last thing. Don't forget to go on to darkfantasticmills.com to get all your fun scenery and terrain for all those great games you play. And thanks to the sponsor, we can put in the promo code CONDENSED to get you 10% off your purchases. And I'm now, I think, officially done with Knights with Warhammer. <laughs>